Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and worldwide. Welcome to this Global Council podcast. I'm Alex Dawson. I'm the UK Politics and Policy Practice Lead here at Global Council, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Stephen Adams, who is the Senior Director of Global Council and our uh, expert on trade policy and the politics thereof. Um, Stephen, uh, we want to talk today a little bit about the sting in the tail that we are seeing uh, with the uh, rules of origin question uh, as relates to the EU trading cooperation agreement that was signed and ratified just about nine days or so ago by the uh, by the EU and the UK sides, um, and where we're now starting to see uh, some businesses uh, find that the um, issue of distribution uh, of goods that have crossed the border between the EU and the UK uh, to be somewhat problematic. Um, I'd be grateful if you could just sort of set out the problems that we're seeing uh, and, and how these have arisen. Sure. Okay. Thanks, Alex. So, um, like you say, the, the problem here is with something that is often very poorly understood about free trade agreements, which is that they are not purely about free trade. They're about free trade conditional on a number of things. And one of the things they're conditional on is origin. And the reason that free trade agreements have origin requirements in them is essentially as a way of ensuring that when two states agree a bilateral preferential trading arrangement between themselves, that arrangement isn't simply exploited by a third country outside of the framework, shipping its goods through the free trade channel. So in the UK, EU case, imagine, for example, you had a preferential trading agreement between the EU and the UK. If it was possible to move goods from China into the UK, inventory them here, ship them straight into the EU, that would essentially be from the point of view of the EU and the UK to some extent, uh, that would essentially be abusing the preferential trade corridor, um, a party outside of the agreement taking advantage of it. So all free, all free trade agreements attached to their preferential tariff rates, origin requirements, which essentially require that in order to benefit from the tariff cuts in the agreement, a good can be demonstrated to be local in a certain way. And this is a, this is a feature of all FTAs, and it is essentially the flip side of any tariff cut in an FTA. So anyone who works in this business who talks about preferential tariffs in FTAs will always talk about preferential tariffs subject to origin requirements. Uh, of course, the government hasn't talked that way when it's talked about tariff and quota elimination for much of the last four years uh, on either side. Uh, but nevertheless, that was always expected to be the condition that attaches to zero tariff trade between the EU and the UK, just as it does in any FTA. The problems that have arisen in this case have to do with origin and the EU-UK agreements uh, definition of origin, and in particular, the way in which those definitions of origin uh, treat goods that are inventoried in the UK without being in any way transformed or changed here. Because the way you meet origin in an FTA is through transforming a product in some way. So either it comes into the UK in one form and is transformed in a factory or via a production process here into something else. So think about uh, leather coming from China or 
Italy being turned into a handbag or a belt. That's sufficient transformation that means that that good is now British for the point of view of uh, a free trade agreement. Alternatively, imagine a car part coming into the UK, which is then placed in a car, which is then exported. The placing of that component into the car is generally sufficient to ensure that the car itself with that component in it, that non-British component in it, can be treated as British from the point of view of the FTA. And the EU-UK agreement contains accumulation provision, which means that you are able to bring components or raw materials from the EU into the UK, transform them, and then export them back to the EU tariff-free. However, there is a minimum level of transformation that has to be undertaken in the UK in order for that to be the case. And that minimum level of transformation is more than simply putting something on a shelf in an inventory store or taking a liquid or a solid and putting it in a new form of packaging, or in some cases, um, applying only the most basic transformation process like uh, slicing or grating or milling rice. None of those things are sufficient transformation from the point of view of the free trade agreement. And therefore, even if those inputs come from the EU, if they are, as they would routinely do in, a, um, in, in, a, in an EU, uh, EU-UK inventory and distribution model, that won't be enough to ensure that when they're shipped back to the EU, they'll benefit from a preferential tariff. And of course, that also applies uh, in many cases to goods that are coming from outside of the EU. So if you're bringing in textiles, clothing from um, Bangladesh, Pakistan, if you're bringing in children's toys from China, if you are merely inventorying those goods in the UK before distributing them to Ireland or to continental Europe, you won't benefit from the preferential tariff because you haven't transformed the goods in the UK. So there are two types of problem there. There are goods that are finished goods that are coming in uh, down international supply chains from outside of the EU and the UK, being inventoried in the UK and moved on to distribution points in the continental Europe or in Ireland. The transformation is not adequate to ensure that those goods benefit from zero tariff. And then we have this especially complex problem of essentially trade inside the free trade block. So goods coming from the EU to the UK and then being sent back to the EU, where you have a similar problem, which is that not enough is being done to the goods in the UK to transform them into British goods for the purposes of origin requirements. And that's where particularly big retailers who operate distribution networks, where they might be bringing French wine, French cheese, Spanish lemons um, from uh, you know Italian textiles or whatever uh, from continental Europe to the UK to their their traditional distribution hubs, then sending them on on the whole to supermarkets in Ireland, for example. Although some of this stuff is going back to retail outlets in continental Europe, all they're doing in the UK is putting it in an inventory, and therefore it's not being transformed, and therefore it is not going back into the EU tariff-free. So the deal may be tariff and quota free, but only when you're meeting those origin requirements. And many UK firms have discovered that, in fact, they are not. And, 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 and clearly, this problem was always going to be an issue. 
ever since the UK kind of made up its mind that it would be outside the common external tariff and the common commercial policy of the EU. That's correct. Yes. So this is this has been a, a problem that, you know, potentially we, we've seen coming down the track for a while. Yeah, I mean, outside of an originating customs union, so like the Turkey EU customs union, yeah. uh, you have this problem: a preferential tariff under WTO. Well, a preferential tariff must be linked to some form of origin requirement. So there was always going to be this condition attached, if you like. I think that a, a lot of businesses operating supply chains that cross the uh, cross the channel or cross the Irish Sea. Um, had had looked into the origin question from the point of view of, uh, say, an automotive supply chain, where the goods are being transformed on both sides, but they, in some ways, I think the the, the bigger the bigger surprise has been in uh, the limitations that the model of the deal, which is entirely conventional, puts on something like a retail distribution chain, um, where you're bringing in goods storing them in a warehouse, doing nothing to them, and then shipping them back out. And of course, one of the reasons for that is that that's actually not a model that is very common when you're thinking about most FTAs, most big FTA partners, not all, but generally speaking, FTA partners there, um, you know, they're either not proximate or they're not sufficiently economically integrated that you'd be running retail distribution networks cross-border with this kind of intensity. Inside the single market, of course, it was easy to do that. The retail sector developed to do that and to a certain extent this is a problem of now taking that highly integrated model and mm. trying to apply to it a an fta concept and an fta architecture which is designed for much less aggregated supply chain models look the um you know i suppose also kind of a factor of this for, for some businesses is that uh, the deal was only signed on the 24th of december um, and it came into effect at 11 p.m. UK time on the 31st of December. They've only really had a week to kind of examine the deal, uh, understand what those transformation sort of thresholds are. Um, how much of this is going to be resolved naturally over over the course of time? Well, the the transformation thresholds are the result of established precedent, um, and they are the same as. Um, I mean, the, F, the, the EU model of origin evolves a little bit with each different FTA, um, but particularly the core model of insufficient transformation. So the list of things we were just discussing there that don't yeah. qualify as transformation. Grating and slicing, etc. Yeah, I mean, although we've got to be careful because there are some forms of grating which can be sufficient transformation. That's why you're the trade uh, Yeah, but but yeah, I mean, the, the point there is that that list of things that don't qualify as transformation, insufficient transformation, generally called, that that is a relatively established protocol. Um, and, you know, you, you could have broadly anticipated that that was going to be the case in this case as well. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which it, maybe people were looking in the wrong places ra rather than the fact that the deal is unusual um, in, in, in terms of precedent. Some business organisations are talking about lobbying the UK government and the EU to help them find a way to resolve these issues. How realistic is that? And uh, what advice would you give businesses in this situation? Okay, well, I mean, let's divide that into two types of question. I mean, the, the first question is, could you change the deal? Um, to which the answer is, in principle, of course, yes. 
I mean, a deal of this kind is 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 a, is a is a bilateral treaty between two parties, and if the two parties agree to trade the, to change the, change the deal, then they can do it. In principle, um, you, you know, the the EU could or the two sides could adopt a derogation from the minimum transformation protocol for a defined kind of trade, um, you know, retail distribution or trade between the UK and Ireland. I mean, but those things are. Those things are perfectly possible technically and legally. The question there, of course, is what's the EU's incentive to do that? Um, the, the EU's public commentary on this problem thus far has been to suggest that it is a necessary and inevitable consequence of leaving the single market, uh, that the, the prerogative of using the UK as a distribution hub, whether you're an EU business or a UK business, um, and of course, there are EU businesses that do use the, e the UK as a distribution hub for trade onwards into Ireland, say. Um, but that's a that, that, that's a prerogative that you lose when you leave the EU. Um, now, whether that end, it is the case, as I've already said, that there is a lot of precedent and therefore quite a lot of kind of path dependency around this approach to origin and making an exception in a UK FTA would raise questions of precedent with other partners, at least potentially, particularly partners who, you know, who outside of the EU, who are finding they are experiencing the same issue with UK counterparts with respect to onward trade into Ireland or, or mm. wherever else. So there's no reason in principle why you couldn't, you couldn't find some derogation that applied in this case to try and essentially sustain these supply chains in their, in, in their current structure but the question is going to be what's the eu's incentive to to do that this is a very asymmetrical problem there are there are some eu suppliers in the uk who uh, distribute onward into ireland or maybe back into other parts of the eu but it's overwhelmingly a problem for british retailers and the european commission's view may simply be this is one of those problems where you just have to accept that, that you know being inside the single market or being inside an originating customs union it is different from being outside it and, and structural change has to follow. So that's the first question. I mean, what, to what, you know, to what extent could you change the parameters to make the problem go away? The, 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 the second set of questions in some ways are, 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 are more complex, which are the, 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 the questions or rather more practical, but also mm. quite complex, which is essentially, can you, can you work around this kind of problem? Um, and to a certain extent, of course, um, you can't work around the minimum transformation problem if you're going to try and sustain an inventory model in the UK inside the customs territory of the UK. There are some questions of definition around what constitutes insufficient transformation. I mean, we were just talking about grating cheese there. I mean, making sandwiches. There are there are um, there are areas of ambiguity around what exactly it means to to apply the minimum transformation concepts to some things that really just aren't traded internationally very much. There is not a big global market in sandwich trade. Um, but, you know, when you're dealing with an EU-UK highly integrated supply chain, we are trading some of those things. So there's going to be a series of questions of how we define and apply these concepts to new forms of or different forms of, of trade. And that's largely going to be a question for the Irish customs authorities, the EU customs authorities, about how they interpret the text as it applies to their imports. The other cluster of potential solutions essentially has to do 
we're trying to build a supply chain that comes through the UK without entering the UK's customs territory. And that's going to sound a little bit strange, but it, it is in fact perfectly possible through a what's called a bonded warehouse model to move goods through the territory of the UK without them being imported into the UK. So they are essentially held outside of the customs territory of the UK. They, they don't go through import protocols. They don't pay tariffs. They have to be um, placed in a, in a supervised customs warehouse. But it is possible to transship goods through the UK or in, indeed in most other countries without them being imported into the UK. So the question for some businesses will be, is it possible essentially to now manage this trade in such a way that it comes into a bonded warehouse in the UK and is then distributed back into the EU or onwards into the EU without ever having been imported into the UK? Because if it hasn't been imported into the UK, it's then non, it's not exported from the UK yeah. and the origin requirements don't apply. However, the complexity here attaches essentially to what you're allowed to do in a bonded warehouse. And uh, generally speaking, it's the rules are designed in such a way that you're not able to really use a bonded warehouse as you would normally use an inventory center. So you can't you can't bring goods in and then break them into separate consignments and send them on, you know, to uh, to, to, to 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 new points of destination. On, on, Otherwise, on, it would be a you know a huge workaround. Yeah. Uh, so or... yeah. So so you, there there may be ways in which it's possible to design. A supply chain in such a way that a consignment comes to the UK. It's, you know, it's it's broadly speaking, it's only stored in the UK, um, and then it's shipped back on to to Ireland or to France, and it never enters the customs territory of the UK, and therefore, uh, it, um, it it's uh, it, it's it's either uh, tariff free in in Ireland or in continental Europe, um, or it, um, it it, uh, it 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 doesn't lose its original origin. There's there's one kind of further category of potential solution here, which has to do with the Common Transit Convention. So the, the, the UK is a member of the CTC, which is an arrangement between the EU and some of its peripheral uh, um, trading partners, which, which um, or in Switzerland's case, is at the hub of the wheel, but the, the tra trading partners that are, that are contiguous to the, to the EU, that allows goods to be moved through those trading partners via customs, bonded customs warehouses in defined ways. And under the CTC, there, there is actually some scope to, in some ways, break down a consignment and reconsign it. Right? You, you can't treat it like a normal conventional, custom, you know, an inventory warehouse, but there is some scope to yeah. manage the structure of a consignment as it moves through a bonded warehouse. And that may be a solution, a, a partial solution for some businesses that are bringing goods into a customs warehouse in the UK and then reconsigning them for, um, you know, maybe partially going on to Ireland, some being imported into the into the UK. So what businesses are doing at the moment is that they are essentially they are essentially looking to see whether those kinds of management models of supply chain management models, which don't involve bringing goods into the customs territory of the UK, um, are a solution to essentially making sure that they can continue to move goods from one part of the EU to another without losing the preferential trade status that goes with single market membership, keeping the goods in circulation inside the single market, or whether it's possible to, um, uh, to, to ensure that they don't lose the preference on a good that's coming in from, say, Bangladesh, which enters the 
EU and the UK tariff-free, but if it's brought into the UK first, then has to pay a tariff on re-export to Ireland. So there's a bunch of technical solutions there around the use of bonded warehousing, which may provide some partial solution to this problem, although it's it's complex and it will it will still involve structural yeah. change. I mean, as with all of the, the Brexit issue, there is quite a complex web of technical trade policy and trade regulations uh, intermingled with a very large dollop of politics, both domestic and EU UK, which is something to kind of try and navigate through and think is something like a company like Global Council, like ours, is particularly well suited to help uh, businesses deal with. Um, I just want to focus before we end on a couple of other just smaller issues. Um, we're seeing some other examples of um, businesses now starting to kind of worry a little bit about delays, not necessarily at the border, uh, but further up their supply chain, depots, for instance, where actually we're now starting to see potential. They're claiming that we're starting to see backlogs uh, as a consequence of uh, consignments being sent back away from uh, the ports at Kent. Um, how much of that is going to kind of develop, do you think, over the next three to six months as processes on both sides get used to the new arrangements? And, and again, how should businesses be thinking about uh, protecting themselves in those circumstances? Well, I mean, this is a this is an inherently a difficult problem because um, customs is a is a is a closed system, and any customs system is only as efficient as its least efficient actors to a certain extent. And it, there is inevitably an extent to which um, people that are trying to cross the frontier without adequate documentation, without the correct documentation, will create a backwards ripple effect for the rest of the distribution chain. Um, and I guess the one obvious observation is that although we seem to have had quite a quiet start to 2021 in terms of the channel port crossings, um, volumes are perhaps a fifth of uh, what they might normally be and certainly what you would expect them to be during peak periods of transit. And I think we have no useful data yet on how well the system is going to be able to cope with um, with, the, with, with the with the new protocols and um, and 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 manage and manage demand. Um, that's something we're only going to see as trade flows start to pick up again, and um, as the kind of the, the the really robust enforcement of protocols on both sides kicks in, which I don't think it has fully yet. Um, the UK government obviously has provided a, a, a something of a six month window in terms of derogation from. Uh, full conventional requirements, and that will provide some scope for expedited treatment uh, on the on the UK side. Although many of the bookkeeping functions of importing, you know, are, are in place and need to be and, and need to be completed. Um, so that's, that 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 will, that will help. But I think the the story of the border um, and at the measure of potential border disruption um, is still to come. I don't I don't think we've 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 got the measure yet of just how um, much disruption this change is going to impose and what it's going to mean both at the border and as you say back up the supply chain as businesses are either redirected back from the border or try to manage disruption by um, uh, by 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 delaying the dispatch of uh, of goods to the frontier well, also border implies a kind of a singular unit when actually what we're talking about is in sort of you know political and governance terms we're talking about two separate entities and the rules that they apply to both um, well, yeah, I mean, 
as they always say in customs, you know, it 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 takes two. Um, it, there's two sides to every border, just by definition. And obviously, the reason you see trucks backing up in Kent is because of what's happening on the French side of the border. Um, so it, there's going to and there's still quite a lot to play for in terms of the way the two sides develop the sort of sophistication of their customs cooperation. There is some welcome content in the agreement on the scope for cooperation and possible piloting of sort of single declaration systems. So systems that, that merge import and export declarations to some degree. Um, and those are things that, you know, really, really matter. Uh, there's no question that the, the key variable with this border in the future is going to be trust and what follows from trust in terms of forms of technical and practical cooperation. And obviously we're starting from a fairly bad point uh, in that respect, but that doesn't mean it can't it can't improve. And to a certain extent, it will have to improve. Uh, this is one of those borders where we're going to have to learn to get along. Well, you know, I think we've been kind of fairly consistent in arguing that the, the deal is a platform or a sort of a framework, but it's not a relationship in and of itself. And the relationship between the EU and the UK is going to be highly consequential as to uh, how this develops over the coming years. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, yeah, well put. I mean, and that, that couldn't be, I mean, there's, there's almost nowhere that exemplifies that, I think, as much as, as, much as customs. The, the content in the agreement on customs cooperation is, is essentially a framework. And what you do with the framework is going to be a question of trust. It's going to be a question of alignment of technical practice. It's going to be a question of human relationships, as it always is in customs. Um, and obviously, if you're a business, it's a question as well uh, of making sure that you're focused on both the UK and the EU's kind of decision makers and policy makers with this regard. Um, look, uh, I, I think we're probably um, time is up on this. I appreciate that everyone's uh, days as we get back to work are uh, very busy and filling up rapidly. So we won't take any more of your time. But obviously, if you have any questions about any of the issues that we've discussed in this podcast, please don't get, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch with either me or Stephen, uh, and we can make sure, or your, or your lead, um, and we can make sure that your questions are answered and dealt with, and we can provide you with a solution and a pathway to hopefully making making these problems as minimized as possible. Many thanks. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.